there, Queens. I'm Dr. Leslie Branch. And I'm Lanier Logan, and this is Hear Me. Black women define the narratives that shape us. Hear Me weaves contemporary and historical weekly conversations to create stronger bonds and lasting legacies. Hear Me is a sacred space where we discuss and define narratives that shape and define who society says we are and find common ground on the things that unite us. She is me, I am her, and we are Hear Me. Welcome to episode four of Hear Me, Black Women Define the Narratives That Shape Us. And uh, this week, Lanier and I will be talking about Joe Biden and uh, his VP pick uh, and Black women in politics. Uh, and uh, we show up at the poll uh, as Black women. So the question is, where, why aren't there more uh, Black women candidates? Where are we in public office or elected office? Um, and so tonight's topic is going to revolve around uh, commander-in-chief in waiting or maybe the 16-year the strategy. And uh, tonight's 16-year strategy, that sounds like a really long time. Well, I mean, when you think about it, uh, when a president is elected, the whole uh, thing is that they will get elected for two terms, right? And then after their two terms are up, which are eight years, the, the strategy is usually to carry out the, the, or to continue the work, you know, you get the, the VP in there in, in the, on the top spot. And so therefore it becomes a, um, a 16 year strategy, right? Mm -hmm. four times four. And so that allows for some continuity of, um, of policy and, and certainly continuity in terms of the court. Uh, and, and those things are important. And continuity in life is important um, just because nobody likes uncertainty. Of course, we are not in this moment experiencing uh, continuity of anything, or if we are, it's just continuity of confusion, and we're certainly not interested in that. So, a few weeks ago, Joe Biden had uh, an interview with uh, Charlemagne the God, and he said something that was offensive and irresponsible. And so, Les, do you want to play the clip? Oh, yeah, let's let's play the clip of what uh, what Biden said. Okay. Well, you know, Thanks so much. That's really our time. I apologize. You can't do that to black media. You I can't do that to white media and black media because my wife has to go on at six o'clock. Okay. Oh, uh oh, I'm in trouble. Listen, you got to come see us when you come to New York, VP Biden. Cause I a, will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see Take you. Take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. The NAACP has endorsed me every time I've run. The war, I mean, come on. Take a look at the record. 
All right, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Anyway, thanks. I will come back. All right. I look forward to seeing you in person. Okay, absolutely. Okay, pal. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it, Charlamagne. Ah, that was so cringeworthy. (laughs) Like, first of all, I have this thing about politicians anyway when they're doing their little black chicken circuit run with the hot sauce in the bag or the eating the fried fish or the just trying to identify with us as on such a low vibration as if we don't understand anything else. So even just his tone and how he was speaking when he came on and just, hey man, and like that really drove, took me over the edge. I only listened because I just wanted to hear what he had to say. But I honestly think that he is trash. (laughs) I think he is this old school racist who will smile in your face, but will call you a nigga to your face. I don't understand why people don't get it. My only memory of him through the whole Obama administration was sleeping in the audience all the time, not an often sleeping, the cameras catching him or the funny memes with him and Obama being like a cool little power team. But I don't recall him being effective. I don't recall him making speeches or showing up and saying things that was impactful at all. He just was a real good hype man, like good for presence, just to show, to get Obama some votes. So now that he actually has to talk, it drives me crazy. Where is his PR team? Like, why does he think that these things are okay to say? Well, it, it, I don't know if it has something to do with privilege, uh, it, if it has anything to do with him just doing it and, and being able to, to get away with it. And to be sure, Saturday Night Live has frequently parodied uh, a lot of the uh, faux pas, the verbal faux pas that, um, that Biden has has uh, has made, has engaged in. Uh, but yes, so it was offensive what, um, what Joe Biden said. Uh, and, and essentially, to recount for our audience, uh, Biden said that if a Black person couldn't pick him in an election over Trump, um, said person ain't Black. And, um, you know, that just... Um, sent Twitter into a tizzy and social media into a tizzy uh, and, and people and, and a hashtag was trending ain't black. Uh, and it just, to my mind, speaks to how the Democratic Party takes for granted the, uh, the vote of, of black America because overwhelmingly uh, black America votes Democratic, I want to say better than 80% much higher when uh, Obama was president. And I'm wondering if Joe Biden believes that his association with uh, uh, Obama will sort of net him that, um, that over 80% of the, of the vote. Um, but maybe, maybe not. But we, we're certainly in, in, in an interesting time now, given not only the pandemic, but 
the racial unrest in this country and we presently only have two choices uh, to choose from uh, in this election year. That would be either Trump, who is running unopposed, as I understand it, on the Republican ticket. And then there is Biden, who is the presumptive Democratic nominee. And uh, the focus, I guess, of tonight's conversation is not so much the presidential uh, election in terms of Biden, but who is going to be his uh, VP pick, right? And he has said that it would be a woman. We are wondering if that is going to be a black woman, if it is going to be a woman who is of a different uh, minority background, or I like to uh, not use minority, but global majority? Uh, or will it be a white woman? Uh, and so these are things that uh, Biden and his team will have to solidify as we move into the election season uh, to solidify his ticket so they can start the campaigning in earnest. And it just becomes very interesting against the backdrop of everything that we're experiencing, who is going to be his uh, vice president pick. So we should talk about it. So I guess my first thought is, does it even really matter? Like, why are we not even at a space to where we realize that we're being used at every instance of, um, Every time there's like an app, anytime a business wants to um, keep their black dollars, they do something and we're just like going for it. Bank of America is like, oh, we're giving 1 billion away. Excuse me, Bank of America. You had 1 billion in overdraft fees that you earned. So you're not, you're not doing anything really for me. It's like this smoke screen and I feel like we jump into it every time. And having him choose a Black candidate, is he going to choose a Black running mate who is going to be silenced? Or are they just going to go along and show up for appearances and not say the things and push the things that we need them to push? That's the problem that I have. I don't necessarily see them as coming up to do us justice. They're coming in for optics. And that is problematic. And I need us to stop being played. I totally feel like this is the point where we have not gained anything. People love Obama. I love the aesthetics of Obama. I love the aesthetics of Michelle Obama. But um, he didn't really do much for us either. And he signed some things into place that was a little shaky as well, like the police protection. I need to pull that law up so I can have it down packed. I'm sure you probably know what I'm talking about or what I'm talking about. But he didn't do as much as he could have. And just like Bill Clinton, I feel like he rocked us to sleep too. We were so happy about what it looked like for him to be in office. And I'm going to say that coming from people who has been through so much, we need motivation. We need inspiration in a lot of ways. So seeing him be there was big.
I think it opened up dreams for little people, for adults, for so many of us that we thought we couldn't accomplish. So I'll, I'll give it that. I felt very inspired. It feels good to know he was great at talking. He did, he did an amazing job. I mean, he's an African-American. Like, we just move like that. We're great at everything we do when we apply ourselves. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not clear on the benefits. I'm not clear on how we benefited. I think it added to us being more complacent and not really being clear on our ask and holding him accountable as well as any other politician. So when Trump gets up there and he says things like, oh, Obama ain't do things for you. Yeah, I feel offended because I'm not going to let you talk about no black man in my company. However, he's not quite lying, but he doesn't have any intentions on doing anything for us either. So I, I'm not even going to sway with him. I just, he does it in a very negative tone, but he's being honest. So right. why are we expecting Joe Biden to do something different? Like, why are we, my position is just remove your vote entirely together. And I know that elders are going to feel some kind of way. I know that there are a lot of people who are going to feel some kind of way about that because our ancestors went through a lot, but we are in a different stage of the game. And the work that they put in worked at that time. We're in a different place. Our votes, our energy needs to be put collectively, locally, where we are directly impacted. All of these people move up and ladder. So for us to think, for me to assume that me voting for a president is going to change the things that are happening to me locally, no, not quite so much. I don't feel like we have anything to lose by removing our vote completely. So in our last episode, I articulated that a lot of the protections and and privileges and and policies that impact us beneficially um, were implemented at the federal level. And so while I may disagree with you in terms of not participating at the federal level, I get what it is that you're saying. Uh, All politics is local, but I would suggest to you and to our listeners that to remove ourselves totally from the federal game is probably not wise because that's where the long game is played. Right, so if we're going to use sports metaphors and you know um, things like that, there are there are strategies, and so at different levels, you need to be strategic in a way that advantages you. So at the, for example, at the federal level, if we just sit out the federal election in, in November 2020 and don't uh, vote for a a president what tends to happen is whoever is president gets a few Supreme Court picks, right? So they totally disrespected Obama in that his Supreme Court pick, they just never even uh, gave the man a a hearing. I think it was Merrick Garland. But at the federal level, and and not just the Supreme Court, but federal um, uh, district courts, uh, federal courts as well, Uh, the president has a role in appointing them. 
And so for the sake of continuity, because those appointments are a lifetime, not only at the Supreme Court, but at federal level as well. And so it, it you know, whatever cases uh, are, are heard, that becomes law of the land and it carries us um, through, you know, with, and, and it provides some continuity. And so if we, again, don't participate at the federal level, we are just forfeiting, I would suggest, an opportunity at, you know, in terms of the long game, uh, right? Because these, these folks are appointed for a lifetime and they will likely make federal policy or, or um, uh, create federal law that is beneficial to communities that are marginalized. Right? And so even though law is supposed to be blind, there's really no, I guess, divorcing a person of their ideology, if you will. And so that's why at the, at the, uh, the Supreme Court level, you, when you have a Republican president, they tend to pick conservative justices. And when you have a, a uh, Democratic president, they tend to, uh, to, to pick liberal justices. Uh, and, and so again, keeping in mind that long game, I, I don't think that it is a wise strategy to, to not show up at the polls one in, in November 2020 to cast one's ballot for uh, a presidential uh, candidate. What I would suggest also uh, is that it is important in terms of uh, who the, the presidential uh, uh, VP, the VP's pick is, right? So the, the VP pick in this, right? So we know who Joe Biden is. We, we but have, do we really? Well, we I, I don't know if we do because this is the most we're hearing of him. But right? we got to see, well, so for, for younger viewers, you know, they may not know Joe Biden or they only may be familiar with him through his uh, through his vice presidency uh, with uh, Barack Obama, but Joe Biden has been around for some time, and so some of our uh, more seasoned listeners might know about Joe Biden uh, with regard to Anita Hill and, and some of the other uh, you know things, and so Joe Biden is a so we, we know him, um, or we have experienced him. And part of the reason I would suggest the vice presidency pick is important is because at this moment, we have what I would suggest a very, I wouldn't say fractured uh, Democratic Party, but there are certainly different wings of the party, right? So you have the centrist wing, you, and you have a more progressive wing. And prior to Bernie Sanders' exit, and prior to uh, Liz Warren's exit, they were the candidates that represented the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And so, in terms of solidifying support for the candidate, the, the importance of a, 
of a vice presidential pick is going to be such that they can coalesce the party around the presidential candidate, right? And so the, the pick is strategic. The pick is very strategic in that you need a party to speak with one voice. You need a party to be cohesive if they have any chance of, of winning in, in November, right? And so if you have, so it's kind of like this, this thing, if a house divided against itself can't stand. And so you have to get every uh, body in line and, and on the same page so we can move forward with a, with a uh, coherent message, right? We can't seem like we're a party that uh, is suffering from an identity crisis. But we are a party that's suffering from an identity crisis because the smoke, the screen, the, the masks are pulled off at this point. The Democrat Party is not for Black people either. They say what they need to say to get us to vote because it's always been, for some reason, it's been, oh, well, don't vote Republican because they're not for Black people. So you just vote Democrat. But the reality is what Democrat, Democratic presidential candidate elects actual president has ever done something for us. And I'm not saying that we need people to cater to us for every whim. But the reality is we have been oppressed. There has been systems. We have had people's foots on our neck for this. I'm 39. So I don't know of any time where there was not a system that was on my neck or on the necks of my parents. So when you say like there's an identity, yes, it's an identity crisis because we don't trust no politics now. I personally don't trust no politicians. I know that you're blowing smoke up my behind. I know that you're telling me the things that you need me to hear because unfortunately not enough of us follow through or hold them accountable. We don't hold people accountable. We don't hold government officials accountable in the way that we should to make them honorable. We don't make them work for our vote. You say one or two little things, you get up and you go on a, our favorite TV show and or you do a two-step with one of our favorite celebrities and now we in there. That's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. And at the end of the day, like we're, a, this is a different generation. I think the millennials between us and the Gen X, like we not with it. We not with it. Like look at the state of this country right now. Pete, we're tired. We're tired of being told whatever it, we need to say to cool us down for the moment. We are tired of the optics. I need action. So if you can't earn my vote because I don't trust you, Nancy Pelosi, I don't trust any of them. They're not doing the things that they need to do. They're not speaking on behalf of us in the way that they need to be spoken to. Everybody who has wealth in this, in this country has wealth because of African-Americans. Point blank, period. I don't see people having the appropriate conversations to make sure that we have what we need. We have all of these documentaries. We have all of these people who come out and talk about oppression is real. Here's how it matters. This is redlining. This what happens here. Mortgage rates are here. We know, so we know that these things are in place, but who's changing them? Who's changing them? So I, I, 
you know, and, and I'm not going to touche, right? So I don't totally disagree with you, but from a strategic standpoint, and, and I, you know, I, you've, you've kind of made the point for me. Um, and this was something that Obama essentially did. And it, it, you know, it enrages people when he blames black folks. And I'm, I, you know, I'm enraged about that too. But from a strategic standpoint, part of the reason during the midterm elections, when the House, uh, when I think it was the, the Senate flipped from uh, a majority Democrat to Republican, it, it happened in part because I think people were complacent, right? And maybe they were complacent not because of some identity crisis, but they were complacent because perhaps they were so in love with the idea of a black man in the White House that they somehow thought we had arrived and there was nothing more that needed to be done. And I would, I would push back and say, we don't necessarily suffer from an identity crisis. Um, I would suggest that there are different wings or different levels to um, uh, the beliefs that are within a, pro a particular political uh, party. And, and so there, there are levels. There are some who are extreme on either uh, one, one end or the other, and then there are some who are centrist. The idea as in any good negotiation, is to figure out what the most important thing is to you and then understand that there are gonna have to be some things that you give up in order to um, get some things and then you just have to figure out what the most important issues are. I would suggest that we are at a watershed moment in this country where we can really have a, a serious conversation around the idea of reparations and around the idea of progressive uh, socioeconomic policies where everybody gets something, but it's not the same. And so the folks who are the most wealth disparate and asset poor get progressively more than the people who don't really need it until it progresses to the point where you get nothing because you don't need uh, anything. And so I would suggest to you that um, it, it's it's really interesting and encouraging to see uh, in a world that essentially uh, didn't, a, a world that once scored black skin is now standing up for and risking its own life to lobby on behalf of uh, its black sisters and brothers, right? That I have, and I'm 56, and, and you know that's not old by any stretch of the imagination, but I can't uh, remember a time in my lifetime or ever reading about it in any history book where a world who has consistently scorned black skin ever coming to the rescue and, and, and uh, risking their own life uh, to, to lobby and stand up for um, black and brown people. And so, uh, so yeah. I, I think that the interesting part to that statement is that 
I think it's twofold. I definitely think that there are people who are enraged, um, who are in full rage of what they saw happen to George um, Floyd. George Floyd, right? Um, black people are enraged for different reasons, right? We know that what happened to him is is not a one-off. Like right. he, we just luckily for him got a chance to get this on video. Poor Breonna Taylor, we didn't get her on video. We literally know that this is what happened. There's reports of them uh, marching in and arresting her boyfriend because they went into the wrong house and shot this girl up the amount of times that they did. So we know that this is a reality that happens in our community. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna say that they are the, the people who are not African-American who are at these protests with us. Do I think they all have good intentions? Sure, I think that they're outraged. I also think that this is an opportunity for them to show up and be angry about something. Do I have full faith that when it comes time for them to get to the table and to have a discussion about reparations, that people are going to speak for our betterment? Absolutely not. There's conversations about that right now and you have people trying to hijack the movement. There's no discussion that should be talked about represent, um, reparations if it doesn't include a black voice. You even have it divided where there's like ADOS. I don't even understand like why is that even a thing? That doesn't even that doesn't even make sense to me. Like we were enslaved and brought here. We built this country for free labor. There is no I am not in agreement with anyone benefiting from reparations other than us. People could be first after us. We could talk about you and your struggles after us, but you do not get to lead the conversation. And in order for a conversation to be had, for us to be put at the forefront to be considered, we have to be in the room. And I cannot trust that there are presidents that is going to have our best interest when it comes to that. Trump is not going to have our best interest and neither is Biden. And truth be told, neither was the other old guy. What's his name? Bernie Sanders. He wasn't, he didn't believe we needed reparations either. People are always looking to hijack our moments. People are always looking for an opportunity to take away what we're doing and what we're talking about to make it work for themselves. And for me, I feel like that's more of a reason why locally we need to get the right people in the right places. If we don't have the right people in the right places, if we don't have the right lobbyists, if we don't, you have um, Asian voters, they don't, no one panders to them. I say this all the time, no one advertises to them because they have their own lobbyists. They have their own communities. They have their own little hospitals, their own ambulance services. They have their own stuff. You go to the, there's a, China, a Chinatown in almost every major city in the United States. We don't have that. They have that because people are lobbying for them, because they have the right people in place, not because any presidents got them that right. That's not how they got that. They got that through wealth, through group economics, and through their own politicians coming in and creating things for them. So I don't, I feel like we are going to get to a space to where we can 
the presidency position will work for us when we have done enough locally. When we've done enough and we have enough people and as judges and, and district attorneys and moving up the ranks and going into the Senate and going into these different places, well, we've actually groomed people and politicians to understand that if they do not choose us or speak to us, they don't get our money. So, to, in, in response to that, I just want to, you know, go back to the notion of the federal level and not dismissing it. Uh, and I, I, what I really like about what the Biden campaign is doing, again, there are different wings, if you will, uh, of the Democratic Party, and the same is true for the Republican Party. But what I like about what the Biden uh, campaign is doing is because they understand the importance at the federal level of winning and pulling in or welcoming into the fold those, uh, those voters who may be feeling uh, disenchanted because Bernie Sanders or Liz Warren didn't, uh, is, isn't the presumptive nominee, Biden has created what is known as a unity task force. And oddly enough, it features um, what some might characterize as uh, Obama administrator, administration haters, right? And so in, in my own book, in, in the preface, I write that uh, when, when people were asking me about uh, why I wasn't a big Obama fan, why do you hate him so much? I'm like, I don't hate him. So I it's interesting that uh, people would, people would conflate disagreement with hate. And it's not that uh, this, this unity task force um, is comprised of people who hated Obama. It's comprised of people who can help Biden corral uh, and bring into the fold people who might feel disaffected because he is the Democratic uh, nominee and not say a person like uh, Bernie Sanders or Liz Warren. One of those uh, one of those task force persons is Dr. Derek Hamilton, who was my dissertation dissertation chair, and so he is a stratification economist that essentially understands the role that economics has played in creating the unjust society that we experience. And so he uses uh, heterodox uh, economics, which is essentially unorthodox economics, if you will, and, and you know, talks about how we need to redistribute wealth uh, in a progressive manner uh, instead of just, you know, putting out this narrative that if you work hard and play by the rules and do all of this stuff, um, everything will go well for you. Wealth actually gives a person agency. And so if a person doesn't have agency, uh, doesn't have wealth, they don't have agency. And so 
but again, bringing my argument back, these policies happen at the federal level. And if we sit out um, the presidential election and we don't get uh, a party in there that can create and will create policies that help, um, that protect, that uplift marginalized communities, then we just set ourselves back further and further. That's, that's where I stand on it. And, and so it's, it's for the long game um, and, and about the 16 year strategy. So assuming Biden wins and he serves two terms, whoever his vice president is, the hope will be that he will have done such a good job with being president in terms of the economy, in terms of, uh, you know, people's well-being, in terms of um, any number of uh, uh, indicators of well-being that people will want to continue that administration through electing uh, the, the vice president for two more terms. And that would provide for some real continuity and um, also along the way putting some federal judges in there that will be able to create uh, laws that are beneficial to, to marginalized groups. So for example, did you know that, um, oh, what, what is this uh, 45? Uh, <laughs> Trump. I, I can't even, uh, it's hard to say his name, but uh, Trump actually, if I, if memory serves me correctly, he just undid um, loan forgiveness, pub public service loan forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And so anyone who, as I understand it, anyone who was hoping to, to get that or who presently has it now, um, that, is a, that is a program at the federal level that is now going to go away. Okay, but how many people got approved? Because of Betsy's, so Betsy, he, look who he put in place. She didn't yeah, approve anybody. People, now people who did get approved, it took them about a few um, repeals and tries for them to even get through. So it took them like a year and that's still low percentage. But, but think about this. Had we elected a, well, actually, you know, not, not to even go there, uh, the, the electoral college is, you know, um, a whole animal. And so Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, uh, but because we don't directly elect the president and we have faithless electors, she didn't win. But has she won, chances are the policy that was created at the federal level for public service loan forgiveness would not be in jeopardy and would still be continuing, right? So it, it, Right, but she's not continue. It's not continuing because he stole the election. 
So right. we're back to the same place of not, and this is not, this is not me saying that I don't uh, understand your perspective. I understand it, but I feel like you have hope in a system that has completely failed us. And I say with, that it completely failed us though. That's so I can't. Oh, I see it in a little different way. I see it as if it failed us. Like we have someone sitting in the White House who literally stole the election. It was proven. He's been, they tried to impeach him. It didn't happen. He's, he's really showing us that he, as a president, you can do whatever you want. Well, it depends on who you are as a president. And, and so I'm very careful to not use, um, how do you call it? I, I, I can't remember why I can't remember this. Uh, <laughs> wow, I'm having a serious senior moment. Uh, but you, I, I'm very careful to not use extremes, right? Always and never. I, I'm just very careful to not do that because there are exceptions. And, and I mean, we, we could, you know, go around the, the, the whole barnyard and, and not agree, but I just, you know, to your point, Local politics is very important, but it will only focus on um, things at the very local level. But if your local um, office isn't isn't that well funded or well organized, it, it could it could be a nightmare. But hope, but here's the thing, though, mm -hmm. it could be a nightmare. But the fact that we've never exerted our energy in that direction, this would be a change. We spend more energy on focusing on who's going to be president than who directly controls your livelihood for the terms that they do, for the two years and the six years. And what is it? Four, so it's two years for some council members um, and city officials, and then it's four years for mayor, and what's the sixth year? Well, six years is usually the federal, um, I think it's the federal level, like governor, uh, Congress, let me, let me see quickly, but I would suggest to you um, the same, the same ills that inflict the the same ills that impact us at the federal level impact us at the local level you know and it could be that people are not voting but we should really peel back the onion with regard to why people aren't voting and i would suggest that particularly in communities of color it's not because we are apathetic i would suggest <clears throat> in some instances, perhaps many, uh, it is because of roadblocks that are put up um, that prevent us uh, from getting to the polls. And, I, and, think and that, I do think that roadblocks exist. I know that they exist. I know that they're challenging, but I don't necessarily think that that's our biggest challenge. I think that not many of us were tuned in and tapped into politics before Obama. And people didn't realize the importance of local and, and, and showing up for local elections. 
And I think now that we're starting to have this conversation, I think there are a lot more people who are not aware about what local politics looks like, how to go about them, what's the importance to show up at your community board meetings, why it's important to know your local council member and to reach out to them and contact them. I don't think that we understand all of those services because there's so much mistrust when it comes to the government and Black people. And so we're not always, we haven't been groomed to really understand that politics can work for us if we choose to get involved and be knowledgeable. So I think that we're coming from a, a place of, we have to do more educating about what each of these roles mean, how they impact us, what do they control, what do they do, why it's important to show up and have your voices heard. I don't think enough of us know that. And, and so that therein lies the importance of uh, civics education, right? So civics is not just only showing up at the polls. Civics is about uh, peacefully protesting and exercising one's constitutional rights in terms of uh, uh, the First Amendment. But civics also involves uh, financial commitments to supporting uh, political parties. I mean, civics, civics is, is, is wide and engaging, um, but I, I think because in part communities are just so disrupted where, where you know, perhaps black and brown communities are, this notion of, of civics and, and being civically engaged, just, um, it, it's, it's largely absent. Uh, or maybe civic engagement is taking place in, in another way, you know. Uh, through through activities that have an immediate payoff, if you will. Um, but for sure, what I, one thing that I'm encouraged to see is just how civically engaged the 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 young, the old, black, white, male, female are behind the um, unfortunate events that are taking place in, in, uh, in our country, you know, around the, the killing of George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud uh, Arbery. And so this is civic engagement at its finest. Um, and hopefully it will keep up. And one thing that I'm encouraged by is that People are actually, as I said before, risking their lives because we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, with the whole social distancing and wearing masks and not getting too close, that is probably the furthest thing from people's minds because they are just so beat down and, and I don't want to say... Um, Tired. Pessimistic, but yeah, they're tired. Uh, it's it's almost to the point that well, if I if if I don't risk this, then I you know essentially lose everything. 
But then that means we're voting out of fear. Well, we're voting out of fear, but we're voting out of a sense of um, uh, perhaps responsibility, right? Maybe we- So a responsibility to pick one of the lesser two evils? Well, so, but here's the thing. In in presidential elections, and and I don't know if you remember this, but in um, 2016, when it was between Trump and uh, Hillary, mm-hmm. what what were people doing with the ballot if they didn't like either of those two candidates? So guess what? I fought myself. That was the year that I had moved that summer, July 1st. I was already a new re- uh, resident of the DMV. I went out of my way the night before to wake up in the middle of the night to drive Ming and I to New York City because I was still registered in New York City to Uh vote. I mean, I also went to get my hair done. I made it a whole day. (laughs) I figured I hit the hair, get my hair, uh, some Senegalese twists, and then after we'll go vote and then we'll jump on the highway and come back home so I can get to work the next day and Madison can get to school. And the whole way, I was annoyed. The highlight of the trip was getting my hair done. It was not voting because I did not want to vote for Hillary Clinton. And I felt like I was being forced to because it was either her or Trump. But that's, I think, where people are um, perhaps uneducated. So even though there are two candidates on the... um, the ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, what some people did, and this was kind of uh, maybe not wise, some people wrote in uh, a candidate name, right in, uh, they wrote in a candidate name on the ballot. And that is something that uh, a person can do. And so a write in candidate is a candidate in an election whose name doesn't appear on the ballot for whom voters may vote nonetheless by writing in the person's name. And the system is almost totally confined to elections in the United States. And so um, what, what impact that may have, I'm not sure, but it could be that um, that it it could be why uh, some people, uh, even though Hillary won the the popular vote, uh, you know, electors just didn't vote for her if she was the presumptive candidate in a particular state because perhaps of write-in. And so people aren't left without a recourse if you don't like the two candidates who are on but we are left without a, the purpose of us going to vote is you pick one of the two. If I write somebody's name on a ballot, it doesn't necessarily mean that that name is going to be considered, which means there are still one of two people that I do not particularly care for, that I don't want to vote for, that are going to be chosen. So you don't need my, you don't need my efforts. You don't need my efforts to add in that. I'm not writing some random person's name on that 
on that ballot unless I got a whole million other people writing the same person's name on there. Like I'm out of the space. I feel like we need to be more intentional and not be in fear of um, the same way I did last year. I said, I'm not doing that again this year. I'm not just going to vote just for the sake of voting. I made a conscious decision. I said, if that's the case, you need to make sure that you are registered in the county that you live in and where you live at now. You need to make sure you're focusing on who's who so that you can make the appropriate choices and votes that make sense for you. But at this point, I'm not, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not with it. And I know it's going to be like beating a dead horse, so I don't even want us to keep, <laughs> like, but I do think that there are some people who feel like this. And I would rather we have this open and honest discussion because I also feel like sometimes people are afraid to speak up and share this point of view because they don't want to be shamed. Right. And I'm not, you know, because I understand what my ancestors put in. Like I've read, like they've put in a lot of work for us, but what they did advanced us for the moment in the time in which we were. We're in a different state. We're in a different space right now. This is a completely different time and we're still fighting for things that they were fighting for back then. We have seats that sit around the table. We even sometimes sit at the table, but our voices are not heard and we're not considered because we're used as optics. And in this point, I feel like with the amount of buying power that we have, with the amount of um, positions and the intellect we have and the college degrees, and we're in so many different places that we have power. And it's about time that we realize that and really decide to say collectively, you know what? I'm not going to participate. Here's where I'm going to participate. Because you're going to make the choices that you feel works best, that you want to work for me, and I'm going to work around those things anyway. You're already making my life harder. So I'm going to do what I need to do to make sure that I'm not impacted by that. And I'm going to work in this way. Now, is that the best approach? I can't tell you. I don't, I don't know. But what we've been doing is not working. What we've been doing is not working. And so why not take risk? When our ancestors and they went out there and they sat at those counters, they took risk. They knew that they were going to get their heads bashed in. They knew that violence or that they could even get killed for risking the opportunity to go choose and vote. So of course, I, of course I'm saying, and I'm coming from a different position, like this is not working for us at this point. So what are we willing to risk? Well, I, I tell you, and, and your position isn't, um, isn't as, as extreme as people might think. I mean, uh, Kwame Ture, uh, also uh, known as uh, Stokely Carmichael, mm-hmm. he kind of understood that, you know, we're doing all of this uh, protesting and we're doing all of this uh, civic engagement and uh, it's not working, and so he just decided to, uh, well, not just decided, but I think he came to a realization that this is going to be a system that would never accept him, similar to, you know, not to use that extreme, but it, it would be an uphill battle, and so he made a conscious decision to uh, leave the United States and reestablish himself in Ghana. 
and he is so and i and i will talk about him a little later because he is actually my recommendation today and i will talk about that towards the end but i did find the bill right it was the 12th bill that obama had signed into law and it was um, a bipartisan support for law enforcement for the two officers that was killed in New York City. So it's called the Blue Act, the Blue Alert Act mm. of 2015. And I don't, so it assisted a national blue alert system to apprehend violent criminals who have injured or killed police officers or who have made an uh, imminent or credible threat to cause serious injury or death of a law enforcement officer. Now, the, when you read and you go into the weeds and you get in detail, creating and signing that bill really has added to the police officers being able to move without accountability. Because mm -hmm. even when you watch a lot of these videos, you hear them saying things like, um, stop resisting arrest. Stop. And the person is laying there. The person is standing still. They right. got their arms. Stop resisting. Stop resisting. Stop. Re it's like you are trying to prove for your cameras, for the recordings, or say it out loud so people can hear that you're doing what you need to do and this person was a threat. And that has justified and been the justification for every killing by a Black man or a Black woman. Look at Sandra Bland. That whole situation does not sit well with me till this day. Those mugshots, you can't tell me that sis was alive in those mugshots. They went through, went above and beyond to cover up what they did to her. All for a failure to slow down, to stop at a stop sign, for her to sit in prison for three days and end up dead and murdered? And still no answers. Still no answers. Because everything is always justified. So I think that politics in general, anyone running for office, they have a lot of work to do in terms of rebuilding trust. I'm not sure if African Americans have ever had trust with politicians or with any government officials especially now today, you literally have every city in the United States is currently protesting for the first time ever in history and 11 different countries. Right. That says something. Even if people are there for different agendas, it says something that people are saying Black Lives Matter. We are literally begging and screaming and pleading for people to see and hear us that we're trying to say that Black Lives Matter and no one gets it. So if you don't think I matter, then that's fine. Neither does my, neither does my, void, my vote. And I'm going to show you what I'm going to choose to do with my vote. In no way am I encouraging people to just not vote and then be a part of society and don't add value. That's not what I'm saying in no way, shape, or form. So I just want to make sure that people are listening and hear what I'm saying. I, what I'm saying is that maybe this is the time that we take some calculated risk and we remove ourselves from this next election and focus more on local politics. Right now, we are generating wealth and we're creating wealth. 
we're made, we're ha we have jobs where there's six figures. We are making money. Let's start pooling and putting back money into our communities. You have all of these businesses that are closed and that are soon to be closed due to the pandemic and the riots. We have an opportunity to start funding other businesses and really creating the communities that we want to live in and we want to see instead of just constantly moving out of the communities to go live elsewhere because it really isn't safe for us or it doesn't work for our income bracket. I just don't know that this president is going to be any different than any other um, president that has been in office. So I guess one of the questions that we have, like aside from good health, what are some of the uh, qualities that you think or characteristics should be considered for a VP pick? So I definitely think um, because the notion of the VP is, um, you know, it, it's it's not, uh, the, the VP pick is, is, Okay, so the vice president is typically, uh, or, or from a constitutional perspective, it's, it's a mundane position. Um, and, and so it's important, not because of any great responsibility constitutionally, but its importance lies in the fact that this person is a heartbeat away from the president. So heaven forbid something happened to the president, the VP steps in and assumes office and carries on with the, the office of the presidency and maintains uh, continuity. Um, and so someone who is learned, right? Well, someone who's like Pence? Well, Psycho Bob Pence? Because he's worse. If they would have impeached Trump and we would have got pins, he's worse. Right. And so someone who, right, so it's interesting because the Constitution, yeah, no, the Constitution lays out the requirements of um, what uh, qualifications a person has to have in order to be president. But we're not speaking from this uh, perspective of the of the person being elected, we're speaking um, in, in terms of the qualities of uh, the person being a heartbeat away from the presidency. And so it, it needs to be someone who, to my mind, understands how government works, right? What the role of each co-equal branch of government is. Um, somebody who understands that they represent the entire electorate, not just 30% of it. Um, someone who isn't a schoolyard bully. Um, somebody who can be empathetic and, and who understands that there is a, a collective nature to the job, not just in terms of nationally, but globally. We, we, even though we occupy whatever the meridians are on the, the grid in terms of the country, we are not a nation or an island unto ourselves. There are other 
inhabitants on the planet. <laughs> and, and so we need to be able to get along with them. And I think, uh, you know, so those- we, have, we want somebody who has influence, who's really good at smooth talking us? Well, no, that's not what I'm saying. I <laughs> know, I'm just at, because these are characteristics of people who are just great at being influential. So think about you're you're a leader, right? I or mean, do you, you care? Do you think of yourself as a leader? I don't. I know that people look to me as one, but I'm more so focused on leading my damn self on a day to day basis and trying to make decisions that I could be proud of a year from now. Right, and so. In terms of leadership, there are some serious, some some uh, articulated characteristics that a leader should have. Influence is one, yes. People skills is another one. Decision-making skills is another one. Someone who can build consensus, that, that's another uh, characteristic. And, and so, a person who has leadership skills, traits, and qualities, but knows when to, to, to leverage those particular skills, uh, traits, and qualities given the situation, right? So as a former military person, uh, there would be times when my company commander or CO or XO or whoever was you know, outranking me would bark an order at me. And the reason they would do that was because in that moment, this was not an up for debate type of thing. I need you to move, move now, sailor now. Sir, yes, sir. Ma'am, yes, ma'am. But there were other times where that same leader would put aside the, the authoritarian leadership style and be more of a cheerleader or a coach and not just, you know, chew my head off because they needed me to move ASAP. And so I'm not suggesting that uh, a leader needs to have qualifications in order to pimp um, Black people to get what it is that they want, but part of leadership is knowing your people or, or understanding a situation and then being able to risk assess and, and, and calculate and, and make a decision. And, and a lot of times, you know, the truth be told, leaders don't know. They don't know and that's why they surround themselves with people who are smarter than them or who at least match their, um, their intellect. And so it brings me back to this notion of this uh, unity task force. Biden recognizes that this country is divided. And so he is not trying to only win over disaffected Democratic uh, voters who would have loved to have seen Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris uh, in, but he understands that there are other people 
on the other side of the political spectrum who he's going to need to unify as well. And so if he can take some uh, or create this task force that he will hopefully listen to their advice where he where where they will tell him you know mr president you if you do this you are cutting off a whole um, part of the electorate that you are trying to work to unify not just only among the democratic ranks but among the republican ranks too the poor rural former in iowa um yeah he could definitely benefit from a green jobs bill as well, or some sort of um, economic uh, bill that will help him because, you know, at the end of the day, he is poor too. And so it's about getting people to think uh, in terms of unifying and uniting and not dividing. And, and I just want to address uh, a point that you made a little bit ago about Black people generating wealth. I would suggest to you, while that may be the case, and there was a very interesting graphic that I want to say CNN had up that showed the wealth disparity in red circles. And so in one of the red circles, the wealth of white America is, I think they had a, a figure in there of $170,000, and it was a big red circle. And then next to it, a small red circle, wealth of black America was only $17,000. And so the, the, the notion that income equals wealth is erroneous, Income is a portion of wealth, but it isn't wealth. And so wealth allows people to weather pandemics. And most of us, most of the people that look like you and I, we can't weather a pandemic because we don't have the wealth to tide us over. Um, and, and most of the people that I know, and probably that you know, that look like us, you know, except, you know, for the grace of God that we remain gainfully employed, they are living month to month and, and their rent is just, you know, adding up. Well, I, I mean, so while I get that notion, I think that financially we're in a completely different position. And while our wealth may be $17,000, our buying power is a larger number. It's in the trillions, which says we could have more wealth. It's just the things that we are choosing to spend our money on. And that literally would be a different conversation in a different podcast, because I just don't think that when it comes to money, we've actually adopted the right behaviors and attitude towards money and what that looks like and how we need to be saving and preparing for our future. Because I do know a lot of people who are younger than me who are financially in a much more comfortable position like they're okay right just because of the salaries that they have and also the conversations that was taught to them about money so their behaviors and how they spend is completely different they don't have um, very fancy cars they own property they might have a nice car but 
their car is paid for, right? They're not um, spending more than they actually earn just on just frivolous spending and high labels and all of these different things. And we could, you know, Black people don't really like to be told about how they should be spending their money, hard-earned money. But this is just such a, a valid point that $17,000 in wealth, but we have a trillion dollars in spending power. So I would suggest that trillion dollars in spending power probably isn't um, the people who have the $17,000 in wealth. That's probably in the highest quintile of uh, black wealth. For the trillion? Yeah. Mm, yeah, I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Especially when I see people who don't really have it spend like they got it and go into debt, <laughs> which which adds because right their money is not being spent appropriately or allocated in a way that makes sense. So if you're spending more than you earn, you're of course you're adding to the debt, but you're also adding to that number of having this buying power that's really an illusion. But if you're right, and so if you're going into debt, that means you're not spending your money, you're spending somebody else's. Agreed, agreed. Or if you are spending your money because maybe you don't have the credit, you're also not taking care of the things that need to be taken care of. So you're falling behind in some way, shape or form. But that doesn't mean that the tally is not running up for spending the money on hair. And I, you know, I probably shouldn't have said that because Black women are very sensitive about their hair, but that's a billion dollar industry when it comes to weaves and even nails. And people, like, I have friends who pay $75 to get their nails done. Like, that's a lot of money. It is. Right? And so I, this is not me judging anyone. This is not me putting people on blast. It's completely unrelated to what we're... It's off the topic, but it's connected to in terms of the wealth conversation, right? I think that if we have better conversations and really understand money and we're raised in a household to really talk about money in the right way, the way other cultures are raised to see money, I think we would be in a different position. I do think we have a lot of catching up to do. For sure. Loads and, of catching up to do. Yeah, and and, you know, I think part of the catching up can be accomplished through federal policy that, um, well, it was federal policy that separated our, us from our earning potential, our labor, and, and it just totally divested us uh, from it. It was federal policy that, uh, in, in terms of redlining, that would not uh, allow us to, to, you know, purchase in a, and 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 uh, get asset building or asset accumulating uh, instruments. And so, at the federal level, because those policies were intentionally created to exclude us, federal policy needs to be created to intentionally include us and. If we're not in the long game on the federal level, we, we can't use whatever influence that we may have uh, to, you know, to, to 
even have the opportunity to hold people accountable uh, to create such policies. Okay, so what about, um, should someone who is centrist be considered over someone who is progressive? From a VP pick, I would suggest that because Biden is centrist, again, because they are trying to do this unity task force where they are trying to unify not just the party, but even the country, you need someone to maybe be a little left of center to who, who can think about policies that are progressive, that can reach to the margins uh, that a centrist wouldn't necessarily go. So if you think about a centrist, uh, that's a person who's in the center, right? And so they are not gonna go anywhere to the left or the right, they're gonna stay in the center. But if most of the people that you're trying to reach are to the left of the socioeconomic mean or median, you need to go to the left margin to get them, right? So if, and so I would suggest somebody who is progressive in their views, who can complement or help the centrist negotiate and, and arrive at policy solutions that are paying attention to and reaching those people who are at the left margin. Because if you're in the center, that's all, that's all you're focusing on and you've got a bunch of people who are to the left and your policies are just not reaching that far to get them, they're gonna stay on the fringe and not be benefited. Okay, so why a woman? Why do you think a woman? And look, this is not even me asking that question because I don't think that we can't. I mean, I think that there's any leadership position that a woman is interested in, especially a black woman, I think sh she should go for it. But I'm just asking, why do you think, it just seems like there's such a focus on him choosing a VP that is a woman and also a black woman. I keep seeing that coming up in the conversation. Yes. So my, my reasons for why a woman, or probably, I probably have two. My first one is because half the country is women, right? And so why is a woman's perspective absent at the highest level if half of the citizens that you are serving are women? So that's uh, number one. Uh, my second reason for why uh, a, a black woman is because Again, it's this notion of the margin. To my mind, there is no demographic that is more on the margin uh, in terms of socioeconomic outcomes than Black women. And so if you are trying to help marginalized people, you need to go all the way to the margin to get them, to bring them into the fold. And if your policies aren't going all the way to the margins, then you're just not reaching a whole bunch of people who need help. And that's, 
those are my two reasons for why uh, a woman and then why a black woman. If you're trying to help the poor uh, rural family, then you need to go to where the black woman is and help her because the policies will be so progressive that it will catch anybody who is not in the center because again, it's going all the way to the margin and it will progressively march back to the center. And by progressively march back, I mean, it will not be a one size fits all approach. If but then we need, then the black woman that we choose needs to have specific characteristics. Because when I think about black women and I think about Candace Owens, who is in way too many conversations. Uh, Republicans have a field day with allowing her to speak for us. Uh And I really want to slap fire on her. And I understand that violence is not always the answer. But every time she opens her mouth, she sets us back. And you know, having the right Black woman, right? Oftentimes, people are choosing Black women who make their white fragility feel comfortable. And she is definitely an example of a Black woman who allows white fragility to feel comfortable because she supports that foolishness. Right. So I don't believe she's being um, considered by Joe Biden. No, of course she's not being considered. But what I'm saying is if there is a Black woman to choose, then she would be a choice. Right. Like we have to be clear about what type of black women we're asking for, because not all not all will be in the betterment for us. Right. Well, I don't think her her views, political or otherwise, even believe that. Well, she acknowledges that people are at the margins, but she doesn't acknowledge that they're at the margins because of systemic racism. And so clearly uh, she would not be someone possessed of the characteristics that, um, that Biden would or should be looking to in a running mate. Absolutely not. So who, I, I don't know. Um, but whoever he does pick or whoever he is considering and and you can you know our listeners can do uh some very cursory research to to see who might be under consideration um as as a a a vice presidential pick they should uh research it read up on them see if this person uh, what their values and their beliefs are if they you know if they vibe with with the person or not. Um, because at this point, there hasn't been a, uh, a pick yet, a choice yet. And now that the world is listening to black and brown people, they might very well be listening to what we're saying in terms even of a potential VP pick, because they understand at the end of the day, 
at the federal level, they can't win elections without the black vote. Democrats cannot win elections without the black vote. And if we don't want to squander our vote, as Brother Malcolm, uh, you know, told us, we should basically and 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 essentially be educated about who we cast our ballot for. Right. And so then to your point, right, one could probably interpret Brother Malcolm in his in his speech, the ballot or the bullet. Uh, he essentially, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, said, don't cast your ballot until you really know that you know that you know. And so one might, you know, loosely interpret that to mean, well, if you don't know that you know that you know, then don't cast your ballot. And that's maybe the point that you were making. That's exactly the point. Um, just because I just think that too many of us are just making it because we feel we have to. Mm -hmm. Like we have no choices and we have choices in everything that we do. And with every decision, there is a repercussion. So if you don't vote, you know, there's going to be repercussions. I just think that people need to choose what makes sense for them. Right. Um, what's in alignment and what feels good for them. Um, so will, the, uh, will those in law enforcement backgrounds be detrimental and will that play into Trump's hands? So having a vice president with, you know, experience. So it's interesting. Um, Kamala Harris was the vice president that had a law, I don't know if law enforcement is the right um, uh, terminology, but yeah, she had a law enforcement background. And so did Michael Bloomberg when, when they were presidential candidates. And what was very disturbing yet interesting to me, and I wrote an article, co-authored an article on it, um, that Kamala Harris got uh, kicked out of the, uh, the race, well, not kicked out of, but she withdrew from the race because she couldn't continue to fund her, her campaign, yet Michael Bloomberg, who had a similar background to her and uh, in, in terms of law enforcement, stayed in the race for a very long time because he was able to fund his campaign. He was able to just fund his campaign through advertisements. I think what Michael Bloomberg spent on advertisements, some campaigns had spent in an entire year. And so given the background that we find ourselves in now with the heightened racial uh, tensions revolving around issues of criminal justice and issues of uh, police brutality, uh, issues of killing of black and brown bodies, uh, by the law enforcement establishment, I don't know that it would be a wise thing for Joe Biden to pick uh, a vice president candidate who has a law enforcement background. On top of that, uh, Trump has been touting 
himself as the law enforcement president and threatening to send the military uh, to clamp down or to tap down on America's citizens, right? Never in American history, at, when America has been a country, has America, to my knowledge, used its military to, um, to, to put down uh, protests. Yes, there is this insurrection act, and, and it was used uh, recently in, 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 in recent memory. Uh, it, it escapes me the, the, the reason that it was used, but what he was essentially articulating is what dictators in, in, in you know, dictatorships do. They send the military in to quell rebellions. And, and so to, to suggest picking someone uh, who has a, a law enforcement background against the backdrop of a president who was threatening law and order and jailing people and telling, telling governors that they have to take over the streets and, and, and subdue people and, and all like that, I don't think that that would be uh, a good thing. No, that wouldn't be a good look. That's not a good look. No. Do you, what do you think is the reason why Carmela, um, Camila didn't win or at least get enough money? Was it because she was a black woman or because she was a black woman married to a white man or because she was a district attorney that was responsible for putting black people away? Like, I'm curious because I get mixed. I haven't really heard a clear why it was just no for her. Well, I think that uh, part of it is everything that you articulated. I, I think, and, and again, because the electorate of any given party espouses issues in a different way than other segments of the party, um, I, I think that her being prior law enforcement and, and having such a, a hard line against people in the the, uh, the justice system, the criminal justice system, may have been a turnoff. Um, I don't necessarily believe that it was because she was a woman, and part of the reason I believe that to not be the case is because Hillary was, oh, well, she is a woman. She's yeah, but she's man. also a white woman, not the same thing. But, but the you know, but the, the common denominator is a woman, right? So a woman did make it to uh, the, the, the nomination of a major party. Right, a white woman. But a woman nonetheless, and I'm not suggesting that race doesn't matter, but I don't think that it has to do necessarily with Camilla being a woman, Kamala being a woman, why she didn't uh, secure the nomination. I think that, again, it may have just been that she was too centrist, number one, and a, a, a 
very sizable swath of the electorate in the Democratic Party is progressive. So her politics didn't appeal to that segment of the party. Um, I think her background in law enforcement didn't appeal to a segment of the party. And so sh there were just some hurdles that she couldn't get over that may not have necessarily centered one uh, race. So. So I guess this brings on my other question, right? Deciding to become a president elect or a vice president elect, I don't know if that is something that you decide early on when you are in high school and that's a goal that you work towards or somehow in your career and government, you start to aspire towards it. But at what point do you think people are supposed to engage their community to have their name be known? Because for me, I personally think the huge disconnect with people is because I don't know you exist until you want me to know about you. And I as mean, a black person, I think that I, you, I may not know about you nationally because I don't live where you live, but in your city, I should be able to see that people are rooting for you and raving for you because you've done so much for the city that you're coming from that that speaks for you. That helps and builds up your momentum. But if where you come from in your own household has nothing positive to say about you and can't, can't validate you, then why should I? Well, again, name recognition is the thing that politicians rely on. That's how most voters vote. They recognize a name, they may not know anything about a person's platform, and just because that's the only thing they know, that will be the thing that you know they they vote for. But and that's so, changing because we knew who Kamala Harris was. Well, yes, it is changing, and um, I think because maybe she got on too late is what I'm saying, right? Like don't want to talk to me or want me to know about you and your record when you need my vote for something, because then you're going to give me the best version of you. We already know that people of color, excuse me, Black people have to work 10 times harder for anything that we want to accomplish. So I don't want to not never know who you were and then all of a sudden now when it counts, uh, I'm being bombarded about your record. Because you're only giving me the highlights in the real, like social media. I want to know what it's like to experience you in the moment, right? So people who are right now in New York City, people are speaking so highly of Cuomo. Mm -hmm. Just because of how they feel like he has rise to the occasion, how he is tackling the pandemic how he is making attempts to deal with the police, um, even when you can see he's at odds with de Blasio and they're not necessarily seeing eye to eye. Right. But he is 
most people that I talk to in New York feel very supported by him. They feel like had they had someone else, they don't really know if the pandemic would have been handled the appropriate way. They just feel like he's always been speaking up, right? And I see a lot of his conversations. He made a speech recently um, in a press conference saying that he was with the protesters. He understood, he recounted different things that happened. So knowing that he's a part of that community and people heavily support him. And I'm, I'm not saying that everyone does. If he ran for presidency, he has a whole city who's backing him opposed to who's the other guy that just ran who tried to run. What's his name? For president? Yes. I forgot his name. Bill de Blasio? No. He was the mayor. I forgot. Bloomberg. He oh, tried okay. to run and that was like an epic fail. I was already in another state and I was like, hell to the no. Because he is <laughs> he is trash. Absolutely not. And there were plenty of New Yorkers who was like, absolutely not. What he's saying he did is not what he did the opposite. He was worse. So the reason he was able to even sustain himself in the race for as long as he did of course, he got money. money. Um, so that that's an interesting question. I, I mean, you know, there are election laws that say when you must have your name on the ballot by. And so typically, before a person will declare that they're running, they will form some exploratory committee to, you know, test the weather or, or test the wind to, to see if it's, it's a viable um, thing for them to do. And so, you know, perhaps from the moment that a candidate forms an exploratory committee, potential voters should be doing their due diligence and their research to, you know, to help them form their opinions about whether this is somebody that they can get behind. I mean, and, and nowadays, we have the internet at our fingertips. But that's what I'm saying. It's not about acknowledging out loud, hey, I'm going to run for president and going through the proper steps. What I'm saying is once you find yourself, should potential candidates for any public office, once you decide to say this is a goal and this is where I'm going, how intentional should you be with your steps and, and your daily activities and with your role and the positions that you're playing? Well, I mean, you know, before you make the announcement or while you're in your exploratory phase, and, and I'm pretty sure there is some, well, I'm not pretty sure, but there is probably some playbook by which uh, candidates abide to roll out their campaign. Um, and, and what that playbook is, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there is one that exists, but they, they create a platform, um, whatever the, the issues are that they're going to run on, and that's what they run on. So, for example, a Andrew Yang, his, I, I think one of his platform 
uh, things was universal basic income, mm -hmm. right? Um, quite honestly, I did not know of an Andrew Yang before Andrew Yang was a presidential candidate. Um, but, you know, he clearly decided that his, his thing was gonna be, uh, I, I believe it was universal basic income. Um, it may have, somebody's platform was the environment. I don't know if that was Andrew Yang, but, you know, people run on a platform. So it's kind of like the school election, right? Not, not, to, um, not to juvenilize it, if you will, but think about elections in, in, in high school or college. Nobody knows who Joe Schmo is, but then suddenly Joe Schmo through you know a lot of handshaking and pressing the flesh and all of this other stuff uh, comes up with a campaign and a campaign slogan and vote for me because this is what I'm gonna do and this that and the other so you you don't know anything about him before or her before they uh, decide to announce and and what their campaign uh, platform is. And, and then they are very deliberate in terms of uh, the strategies and, and the, the talking points and, and all like that. But, you know, this person could be relatively an obscure person. And I don't know that it can be, I, I don't know if there is a playbook. I don't know. So, I just saw like a disturbing video and I just got so distracted. Um, you know, they're protesting and this older gentleman, you can clearly see he's older. He walks up as the police are walking to him. I don't know what city this was in. He's saying something to them, not even aggressive. You can see he's old, gray hair, very slim. They shoved this poor man on the floor he fell backwards and cracked his head on the concrete. The police, it's like 17 of them. The one who pushed him just stepped over him and kept water, walking and you could see the blood leaking from the back of his head. And the man is just laying there, not moving. Wow. And that was a white man that they knocked on this floor. That is just so, I think whoever comes into office right now really needs to i mean this leads into my next question of like what are some measurable expectations or goals that we would want either candidate to accomplish that we want to impact us police need to be dealt with point blank period they need to be held accountable in the most serious way that is like in earth that is desperately needed. Well, that, so, so police, local police uh, are the jurisdiction of the mayor and I guess the governor of the states that they operate in or the district attorney or, you know, that's a, that's a state thing. And so I guess if it means defunding them, um, in order to demilitarize them, that 
that is a local thing. And so to your point, you know, hopefully people young and old will participate in local elections um, because that is the, the level at which to deal with uh, some of the things that we're seeing. I, I know that we can't take no more abuse. I mean, Black people are resilient, yes. We have come through so much trauma, but um, I don't, I definitely don't think that we can take any more of this. So when we think about this, I really want to put this out to the audience, um, our call to action. And I know for me, I want people to really know and get to know their local politicians, right? I want them to really do more and learn uh, how policies are created. Uh, a friend of mine actually created uh, a website called Query Black, uh, where they are focusing and help, helping Black voters tell lawmakers what they want. Um, they're completely bipartisan volunteer analysis group, and they support the Black community. So what you do is you go in and you they'll have a campaign up right now that the campaign that they have is police reform and if they get enough signatures maybe five to ten thousand signatures uh if that beats out any other campaigns that are running at the time that's what they will help to create a, a draft a policy up and then they will push that to specific organizations like Color of Change and organizations who use policy to uh, help get it funded or help get it put into place and create a law. Um, they are all about data and collection. So I think this is um, an interesting start because most people don't realize that you actually can be a part of creating a policy, that you don't have to have a specific role in the government. So you can, if you see a campaign that's there and you're not interested, you can create your own. And if people vote on it and they like it, then they just, they move towards the highest signatures and they vote to create that and push it forward and see what happens. Um, but I really want people to, to really focus on understanding local politics, finding out when their next community board meetings are, know the names of your city council, find out when the next uh, voting takes place in your city, in your uh, county. That's really important. Uh, we have come too far in this country that we cannot be left out of politics any longer. We can't just pretend like things are not happening, like people are making decisions for us uh, that don't work for us. We have to be a part of the conversation and we have to make sure that our voices is heard and that is a start. Um, what about you? Do you have a call to action? Well, my call to action is uh, similar, um, but it, it involves knowing something about the person that you want to cast your vote for. And, and oh, don't just do the name recognition thing, right? Uh, and a lot of the name recognition is passive. We're bombarded with ads 
around election time, vote for so-and-so, so-and-so, I'm so-and-so, I approve this message. You don't even know what the message is, but you know what so-and-so's name is. Um, right? So <laughs> get, to know, get to know who so-and-so is and what so-and-so's platform is and whether or not so-and-so's platform and values resonate with you. Uh, again, if all you know is the candidate's name and not their values and not their platform, you could very well be putting somebody in office who does not represent the things that you care about and therefore does not represent you. After all, America is a representative democracy. And even though the person who gets elected is supposed to represent the entire country, politics is partisan in some instances. And so if a person gets into office like the presidency and, and as we are seeing uh, with this president, he does not represent the entire electorate uh, that he governs. He only represents the portion of the electorate that agree with him. And, and so before you, you know, circle in the little grid next to somebody's name, because that's the name you recognize, uh, know what the person stands for. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this episode, I want us to talk about our book suggestions briefly. I actually have two, so I'll let you go first. All right. So my book suggestion is uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf's uh, book. Ellen, she was the uh, former uh, president of Liberia. She was Liberia's first president. And the name of her memoir is This Child Will Be Great, Memoir of a Remarkable Life of Africa's First uh, Woman President. And what to me is so remarkable about her is, uh, you know, she became president in clearly a very patriarchal uh, society. Uh, and she was not a young woman when she was president. And she was a unifying force during her presidency. She was elected president after a very, uh, very horrible civil war that just decimated Liberia. And while there is still a lot of work to, to do, she was able to get in there and, and get some, some good reforms for Liberia in terms of, um, of international uh, help. And so I'm just encouraged by her. I had the opportunity to meet her. And when I went to Liberia, I want to say in 2011, I had her sign a copy of her memoir, uh, her book for me. So it's, it's on my bookshelf. Uh, so yeah, definitely um, a uh, very encouraging story for anyone who is interested in engaging in politics. And even if you're not, just understanding 
uh, the power of politics and the difference that you can make. So I have actually, so I have two. Of course, you know, I'm always end up doing my own little thing here. But so one, because I didn't want to come off completely biased, but I really think that this book is important to what's happening and just really understanding attitudes and it does a great breakdown. Uh, it's actually your book. Optimism at all costs, Black Attitudes, Activism, and Advancement in the Obama Amer in Obama's America uh, by Leslie Doctor. Can't forget that DR. And that does not stand for Dominican Republic. <laughs> Dr. Leslie Branch. Uh, I think that that is definitely a book that needs to be read. And it's not something that you can just read it for the sake of reading, like you do need to digest it. Um, so it plays very much into the conversation that we had today. Now, something else I wanted to play, um, I wanted to talk about too was my other suggestion. I want people to go on YouTube and I want you to look up the discussion. It is one hour and 27 minutes and two seconds. It is 1973. The Black Leaders Discussion featuring Angela Davis, Kwame Ture, and Fannie Lou Hamer. That discussion is, for so many reasons, I'm recommending it because it was in 1973. And here we are in 2020. And we are asking for the same things. And you know, I'm all about the blueprint and I'm all about like our ancestors has done a, have done a lot for us. And there are some things that I don't think that we should reinvent the wheel. I think that right now the country is listening. Other countries are listening, right? Every state in the United States right now has a riot and a protest going on. There are protests in 11 different countries all screaming Black Lives Matter. Yes, we have people in different parts of the United States and different countries who are trying to counteract and protest those protests, but our voices are louder. And while people, we are all angry, I really want us to focus on next steps and I want us to be clear with our strategies. I also feel like there is a lane for everyone. So while I may be encouraging people to really think about their votes and not be afraid to remove it from you know, national presidency uh, election, and I want you to focus on local politics, there might be, there's definitely plenty of us who are on the front lines and we are protesting. There is a large lane for us who are the business owners, right? There's a large lane for, um, for us who are, have the ability to write policy and who have an interest in getting into politics. What I, all I'm saying is that there's a lane for each of us. And I think we really need to start about thinking about how are we going to add to create the change that we want to see in this new civil rights movement. Um, the revolution is televised at this point due to social media. And I think that this is a great time for us to jump on it and really start thinking about what lives, what uh, type of country we want to live in, especially for my 10-year-old who will be 20 uh, in 10 years, right? And those, you know, that time is a blink of an eye. So 
Do you have something to add, Dr. Branch? So my, uh, I guess my final thoughts are again, um, there's a, a long and a short strategy and wherever those lanes are in that long and short strategy, we need to, uh, we, we definitely need to be in both, right? So that sort of dovetails what you said, there's this lane, there's that lane, there's this lane. Some of those lanes are part of long, uh, long game and some of them are part of the short game, but we need to be representative and show up in both of them in order to uh, maximize outcome. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We are officially this wraps episode four. Uh, this is so funny because I think we've been, it's almost been what, an hour and almost two hours. Oh, are we ever going to have, really? Are we ever going to have a podcast that's like an hour, maybe 30 minutes? <laughs> we are like chatty patties. But um, I think it's very important because obviously you see these are two different perspectives. Um, we have a great deal of respect for each other and both of our voices matter. And sometimes it just takes a conversation of two different perspectives to inspire uh, thought or spark action in someone else. So thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we will see you next week for episode five. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mrs. Young Mogul. You can check out my website, LanierLogan.com. And you can follow me at Lessie B. Branch on Twitter. And my website is lessybranch.com. Okay. Thank you, everybody. It's been real. Good night. On that note, it's a Rizzi. Thank you for joining us. You can catch our latest episodes every Tuesday. Hear Me is on Spotify and iTunes. And it's executive produced by me, Lessie Branch, and Lanier Logan. And big thanks to Lil Salastro who produced the beat. Till next time, hear me.